So, Mark, yes, we love the love. We do, indeed. You might be able to find that in our name, but impossibly. We love the love. I count on it, but it could be there. You do know that I changed the name of the show to Forearm a couple weeks ago, right? <laughs> oh, God, no. If I found that out, I would not be happy. What's funny is it might take you a while to find out. It would take me some time. That is true. It would not happen immediately. At this point, we record several months in advance and out of sequence so i know when i edit and upload things but mark doesn't really like mark probably doesn't know that last week's episode was ghosts of girlfriends past did not know that i do know next week is a show we recorded in september november maybe november it comes out i think exactly three months after we recorded it that's absolutely insane yeah we're cruising along we got some good stuff coming up yeah, um, I have no idea what's after that. We recorded some episodes at some points, and those will come out. I did know that you didn't change the name yet, because I showed two people the show today, developing our listener base. Good, good. So I had to search, and if I found our show that was not there and instead called Foot Far Arm, it might just be a Will Redmond show after that. <laughs> All right, well... Of course, this show is still We Love to Love, and of course, 2019 gave us a lot of love to love. There was a lot of movies that came out this year, and a lot of them had love in them. Yeah, I think I saw, like, between 80 and 90 2019 releases. Oh my god, you have a problem. And my solution is watching movies. That is so many films. I saw many less than that. That is true. Including... As we'll find out later, very few of the Oscar nominees. That is true. Now, part of it is you're in the UK, you're in school, it's harder for you to get to the movies, and also release dates are wonky there. Like, Parasite still hasn't opened. It opened and then is coming back out, I think. Lighthouse opened this weekend. Good movie. And I know it wasn't nominated, but just to give a sense, also, movie tickets are- Well, Lighthouse are... did get uh, some below the line. Cinematography. Oh, okay. uh, movies are also just much more expensive here than when you have AMC stubs. Woohoo. The real sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> the thing that keeps this show alive. Yeah, every dumb movie I cite during this episode, I saw because I have that. I'm very excited to hear some of your deep cuts in this episode. Yeah, of course. So because Mark hasn't seen a lot of the Best Picture nominees, we will still do our traditional rating of the romances of the 2019 Best Picture nominees. We'll be adding in some special We Love the Love Awards to give you a lens into our film-going experience in the past year. So our first award is one that we have given out every year that we do these awards, which I'm trying to give some names to our awards. So this year I'm calling it the Kayla and Gabe in eighth grade award for best romance that wasn't nominated because last year we both picked that as our favorite romance from a non-nominated movie. It's such a good romance. It's maybe the purest romance we've ever covered. Yeah, it's so sweet. And it involves chicken nuggets. So how much better can you get? And so many condiments. Oh my god, so many sauces. Alright, so starting off for 2019, what is your favorite romance in a movie that was not nominated for Best Picture in 2019? Okay, so I have two that I was torn about. Oh, me too. I want to talk both, but I will try and figure out which one I choose in the end. The more serious romance is the gay couple in Judy, whose house she goes to, who are just very cute and have been through a lot together and are very nice, and it was a great way of showing the trauma that the laws of the time inflicted on couples just trying to live their lives with the people they love. And it was a very sweet moment, and I enjoyed that. But 
on the other hand, there's Molly and Jared from Booksmart. Oh, of course. <laughs> because Jared was just one of the weirdest characters I've seen in a movie. I rewatched that movie on Hulu a couple weeks ago. It's so good. It's so funny. And their relationship is so funny throughout that movie. The way they interact. Gives the commencement speech in her words. Like just standing there on the stage saying, I am a powerful woman. That is love. And that's what we love. Exactly. Uh, I also had two. My more serious one is the central romance of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the tremendous French film about lesbians in the 18th century. It's shocking that that film was not. France's pick. I haven't even seen it, and I am shocked. I have not seen Les Miserables, the actual French submission for the Oscars. For those of you who don't know, every country gets to submit one movie. So if there are two French films, France has to choose. They chose this movie, Les Miserables, which is not an adaptation of the book. It just opened in the U.S. like a week or two ago. I have not seen it yet. But Portrait of a Lady on Fire, it's awesome. The romance is so well done. And you just get invited into this private world. And it's so thrilling and exciting, the sense of discovery. And massively built to the point that there's a moment late in the movie where a character walks into a kitchen and there's a dude sitting at the table. And you're so annoyed that a man has had the audacity to intrude on this movie. I have that feeling about most movies, and most movies are about men. Yeah. So, speaking of a movie about a man, (laughs) it's in the title, because my other favorite romance is the Ned-Betty relationship in Spider-Man Far From Home, when Ned Leeds, played by Jacob Batalon, as they're getting on the plane, is telling Peter Parker, don't worry about MJ, we're going to be bachelors in Europe. And keeps going on using that phrase. And by the time they get off the plane, Ned has started dating the, like, cute blonde girl who is sitting next to him. And they have this, like, overdone high school romance where they're talking like they've been together for 20 years. And then break up on the plane home by the time they get back. And have (laughs) this, like, very world-weary framing where they're like, oh, yes, you know, that relationship from my younger days. It's so funny. I totally forgot about that. And that is so well done. Yeah. It's an incredible joke. Where it's never at the character's expense, it's at like, yes, this is what some weird high school relationships look like. Yeah, it's not like the characters themselves are bad or dumb for doing this. It's just the fact that they are children, and this is how they think. It's incredibly funny. So I was really torn. I was like, do I go for like this serious, heartfelt, lesbian period romance, or do I go for the like weird, laughable kids in Europe? Both. (laughs) And that's what I did. We're not the Oscars. I'm the New York Times. Didn't the Oscars tie last year? No. No? For what? I don't know. Wasn't there a tie in the Oscars at some point? Maybe once, like decades ago, in like the 70s. Sounds like a thing that they do. I'm Googling it. Six times there were ties at the Academy Awards by Mental Floss. 1932, 1950. You gotta tell us what they're for now. Now I'm interested. Oh, okay. In 1932, Best Actor was given to Frederick March and Wallace Beery. I've never seen Wallace Beery, but Frederick March, good actor. Frederick March won by only one more vote, but the Academy then honored both of them. Okay, so not a tie. Not a tie. I don't know. This is a weird choice. March won for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Beery won for The Champ. Okay. In 1950, Best Documentary Short was a tie between A Chance to Live and So Much for So Little. Oh, So Much for So Little was animated. Oh, cool. Interesting. In 1969, Best Actress, which is probably the best known one, was a tie between Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn. Right. That's the big one. Yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. What are those movies again? Um, Babs won for Funny Girl and Katherine Hepburn. 
burn one for the line in winter. Oh, sure. Um, this is a very confusingly worded article. <laughs> Mental floss. I'd like <laughs> to floss you. In 1987, best documentary feature was tied between Artie Shaw, Time is All You've Got, and Down and Out in America. Okay. Presented by Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> what a weird fact to throw in there. <laughs> the still is of Oprah Winfrey looking shocked. In 1995, best live action short film was a tie between Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life and a LGBTQ youth film called Trevor. Okay, I know nothing about Franz Kafka's It's a Wonderful Life, but boy, is that a great phrase. Yes, I I would like to find that one. And in 2013, best sound editing was Zero Dark Thirty and Skyfall. Both good choices for that. So I guess I was thinking of that one. I knew it happened in my lifetime. Okay, well, I guess we have both given ties for this first award. Again, the Kayla and Gabe in 8th grade award for best romance in a movie that wasn't nominated for best picture. We will find out if Will comes up for names for any of the others by the end of this episode because they are not in the script. I already have some, but I didn't want to tell you. Oh, (laughs) that has me terrified. So anyway, it is time for us to move on into the main event of this podcast. So welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Will and I'm a ginger. I'm Mark, and I'm terrified. (laughs) Shaking things up. What is happening? This is an investigative podcast. Investigative? How do you say that? I actually don't know. I think both are fine. Okay. Committed to examining the most pressing and urgent issue of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? Does it matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-seed flirtation? We will dig in and see what there is to be found. You're supposed to, like, do a lot of vamping there and add a bunch of stuff that's not in the script. Yeah, well, we've already added a lot of stuff that's not in the script so far this episode, so maybe I'll just kind of keep it moving, which is exactly what's happening right now. So we're not going to stop until we've found a conclusive answer. And so this week we're celebrating Hollywood's big night, the Oscars. And as Will says, this year's slate is pretty solid if you overlook the Joker of it all. Boo, Joker sucks. I actively did not watch Joker. Yeah, that's one of those movies that I saw primarily because I knew a lot of my students would see it and I wanted to be able to talk to them about it, which is a thing I do every once in a while. The other movie that I definitely saw for that reason was Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, and both movies were bad. I just had absolutely no interest in watching the Joker about a man get sad and angry and violent. I'm realizing I'm less and less interested in violent movies the older I get. That's fair. In my world-weary age of 25. The thing about Joker is that the ad campaign and the discourse actually made the movie sound more dangerous than it was. It's so much about nothing, but not even in like a nihilistic way. It just has nothing to say. And we'll talk more about that later. But I find a Joker deeply frustrating because it is so incredibly pretentious and so utterly empty. That's the worst combination to be. Yes. It also should not be set in the 1980s. If there's one thing you know about Joker, you know that it looks like a Scorsese movie like Taxi Driver or King of Comedy. And it doesn't make any sense that it's set in 1981. Because it is a movie about, like, class protests in the streets of Gotham, a.k.a. New York. It looks like the Occupy movement, but 30 years early for some reason. And the plot depends on a video going viral. Like, the movie only works if everyone has seen this, like, one stand-up set that happened once. And if you set the movie in 2010, it could be on YouTube. And instead, they put it on Robert De Niro's late night show once. So what the movie demands is that someone videotaped this open mic stand-up, sent the tape to Robert De Niro's producers, they decided to air it, and every single person in Gotham saw it. 
it just would have worked exactly the same in 2010 from what I've heard. better. Yeah. Except that then it wouldn't look like a Scorsese movie from 30 years ago, and Todd Phillips is desperate to make it look important. Ugh. 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 It's like, what's wrong with the Oscars in general? The idea that a movie has to look important. Yes. Anyway, we can talk more about Joker later. We will, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So, Will. Yes. What's this week going to look like? So, we're going to walk through every one of the Best Picture nominees and just do a brief rundown of the romance in each one. So, there are going to be some spoilers for Best Picture nominees. But again, we're just going to focus on the romance. So, like Parasite, I'm not going to tell you much that's important about that movie because that movie is not a romance. We'll rate all of the movie's believability on our usual 10-point scale and maybe talk about some other nominations as we decide to do so. Cool? I am ready to go (laughs) to talk about my three movies. Yeah, a lot of these are going to be by me because I saw... This actually was the first year that I had seen every Best Picture nominee by the time the nominations came out. That's crazy. It's made for a very weird January because normally I'm just playing catch-up on the Best Picture nominees, but this year I was so ahead of the game, including like 1917 opened here just before nominations came out, but I was in New York the first weekend of the year and I went to see it there. So I've spent January being like, what do I do at the movies? I guess I'll see Doolittle? And I went to see the Oscar-nominated animated short films the other day. I think those are playing here and I want to get to those, but the Oscar week at the Barbican isn't starting till the week after next. Oh, that's dumb. When they're starting their, like, rewatch. Yeah, the animated shorts are pretty fun. I haven't seen the live-action ones. I'll be going later this week. When you go, they do a whole program of them. They show the five, and then they show some of the other shortlisted ones. And it's hard to watch that and not think the Academy messed up on the animated shorts. Because the best one that I saw that night was one called The Bird and the Whale, which is really cute. It's kind of like a painted-style animation. And there's, like, a Fantasia quality where all the music is cued to be, like, the whale and the bird singing. It's very, very cool. And that one's not nominated. If you see the package in theaters, it ends with one called Maestro with animals that are not Lion King-level photorealistic, a little bit more stylized than that, performing an opera conducted by a squirrel. And it's delightful. That sounds very fun. Whereas, like, the nominated ones, it's cool that there are lots of different styles of animation in the nominating pool. But, you know, it's Oscar-nominated shorts. There's a lot of sick and dead parents. (laughs) That sounds very accurate. Look, when you watch a lot of shorts, and in the last couple years, I've come into this zone where, because I watch these packages every year, I've seen a number of shorts and always in these packages, and you're like, oh, look, another child in danger. (laughs) Another sick parent. What was the Pixar... Toy Story 4 short this year? There was not a short attached to Toy Story 4. Oh, well, that explains why I can't remember it. There is a Pixar short nominated, but it's one of the Spark shorts, the series they do on Disney+. Plus. Why it's wasn't okay. there a short? Was there know. some other thing? No. No, there was not. There wasn't an Olaf's Frozen Adventure situation? Mercifully, no. The thing is, there is a good Frozen short. Frozen Fever is cute, but it's like five minutes. Not 30. Yeah, it's not clearly a TV special. My God. So Anyway... Speaking of weird stuff, before we actually start running down these romance <laughs> summaries, guys, we've got so much business to take care of today. We haven't recorded in like a month. Um, Mark, we're giving out the next of our special awards, which means I need you to make the Jellicle choice. What is the best cat in a 2019 movie? So I'm very frustrated to say this, but... I was thinking back. I couldn't remember any films with real cats off the top of my head 
And I was thinking, and I realized, I think Taylor Swift may have given the best Cats performance this year. I enjoyed her song, and she was in it so short that she didn't have time to really get freaky. She's doing something kind of interesting in there. Yeah, she's having fun with it. She sings a song. It's not terrifying. It's weird to see her in heels as a cat, but whatever. Yeah. I had D&D the evening after I saw Cats, and I named a random goblin Shimbleshanks the Railway Cat. And so what my party did was they killed the goblin chieftain and made Shimbleshanks the chief. Is it Shimbleshanks or Skimbleshanks? Oh, it might be Skimbleshanks. I don't know. I'm Googling because I'm worried I've been... Oh, I think it's Skimbleshanks. I was worried I've been saying it wrong for so long. I'm sorry. Because it's so important. Skimbleshanks. The whole show is about saying their names correctly. (laughs) No, it's like if you can't get the names right. I have no idea what Taylor Swift Cat's name is. Isn't it like Bumbleerina? That sounds about right. Let me figure out. I really hope I got that right. I'll be roll impressed if you did. Jellicle choice. (laughs) This movie was awful and broke me. (laughs) I left that film very unhappy. Bumbleerina. Nailed it! Amazing. My Jellicle choice is Goose the Cat from Captain Marvel. Goose is an alien cat who can unhinge its jaw and have, like, tentacular fangs that scoop things up horribly. Oh, that sounds very fun. It's pretty cool. So that's our second award taken care of. The Jellicle Cats are Bumble Arena and Goose. I feel like every year we should definitely make the Jellicle choice. Oh, of course. Knowing this, I will pay more attention to cats and movies. Yeah, we're definitely going to keep making the Jellicle choice because somebody's got to go to the heavyside layer. Yeah. I thought about doing a big year for rabbits award because 2019, of course, was a huge year for rabbits. We had all the rabbits from us. And, of course, both the person, Jojo Rabbit, and the rabbit in Jojo Rabbit. There was also the favorite was the year before. Yeah, so the favorite's the year before. moment. 2018 was a big year for rabbits because you had the rabbits in the favorite and you had Peter Rabbit. Yes. And then next year's Peter Rabbit 2. We're in the rabbit. It's the rabbit sauce. Essence. Yes, this year is Peter Rabbit 2 The Runaway, in which Rose Burns' Beatrix Potter has written the Peter Rabbit books, so Peter Rabbit himself is a celebrity. I am so mad. I'm mad you're not going to be in America when it comes out. No, I will not be watching this. You're going to have to go watch it alone there, bud. All right, let's start running through some of these romances. All right, movies that came out this year and the love within them. We're going to go through alphabetically, which means first off, we are going to talk about James Mangold's Ford versus Ferrari. Is it fast? Larry, wait a second. What type of girl are you? Type of girl who likes the smell of wet gasoline. Oh. And rubber. Oh. What are you, some kind of a deviant? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, only since I married you. We, of course, talked about James Mangold on the podcast last year when we discussed Kate and Leopold. Oh, God. He directed Kate and Leopold and Ford versus Ferrari. With two Wolverine movies in between. It looked like the most dad movie I've ever heard of, based on the trailers. brilliantly. Like, I'm a fan of Ford vs. Ferrari. It doesn't come into my top ten by any means, but I think it's a really fun movie, and it should play on FX forever. (laughs) I know exactly what genre of film this is now. Right. That told me a lot. Um... I also do think Ford vs. Ferrari is interesting because it is 100% James Mangold making a movie about making Wolverine movies. Huh. Because it's not about, like, the companies. It's a creatives versus suits movie. Ferrari doesn't really matter. It's just the Ford team. So there's Tracy Letts playing Henry Ford II. He's great in it. 
and like him and Josh Lucas and like the other suit people. And then Matt Damon and Christian Bale are trying to make a car that can actually beat Ferrari in the 24 hours of Le Mans race. And so Damon and Bale are like trying to make this cool car. Tracy Letts and Josh Lucas just like want things to look good for corporateness. Bale is all on the way of like, I'm just doing the car in my British accent. And Matt Damon has to balance the two of them, which means Matt Damon is basically James Mangold making Wolverine movies, being like, let me do my weird Western thing, but also needing to satisfy 20th Century Fox executives. Yeah, that sounds actually more interesting than I was expecting. I think it's a good movie. Yeah, I heard it was interesting. Yeah, I also got to see it in Dolby, which was great. So definitely a movie to watch. On a larger screen, if possible. I think the racing is really well done, too. They do a nice thing with a little toy racetrack of Christian Bale talking to his son, showing him the different parts of the track, which means that then when you're in the racing sequences, you understand what's going on at all that point, instead of just, here's more road going on. Do you hear someone ever say, zoom, zoom? No, but it does start with Damon doing voiceover over Black about driving, which is also the way that the movie Cars starts. (laughs) Didn't you know this is actually a prequel to the film Cars? Cars? Kind of good. It is these cars that then go on to become sentient and murder all humans, creating the Cars world. So anyway, the romance of this movie is Christian Bale as Ken Miles, the racer, and Catriona Balfi as his wife, Molly. They are British, but they live in America. They own a garage together. And I will say one of the virtues of the romance of this movie is that she is not somebody who's like, why are you always going out and doing these races? Like, just come home to us. She's a person who's like supporting him in his racing. But then when he says he's not going to do it and then starts doing it again because it's a sports movie, she's like, I don't understand what it is you want. I will support you in what you want to do. But I think you need to make real decisions for yourself. Hmm. That is, honestly, it's very... I feel like finding a balance between the supportive wife trope and the angry wife trope is difficult, but very interesting when done well. I think it is done well. They have a real partnership. She does literally work with him in the garage, like fixing cars and stuff. And the real relationship at the core of this movie is the Damon Bale friendship. It's like kind of a professional relationship because Damon hires Christian Bale to join this project, but they are good friends and have been for a long time. And there's a scene when Matt Damon comes by and Christian Bale is mad at him and they start having a fight on a patch of grass across the street from the house. And Christian Bale's wife, Molly, is just like, well, this is dumb. So she just pulls out a folding chair and a drink and just sits on the lawn watching them. It's like the essence of wordless sass. All right. So what are you going to rate this film? I don't know. I don't think it's 100% because it is that weird, like, movie marriage thing. You know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about. Yeah. This is a genre we all know. But I think it's a very well-done version of it. I like the partnership that's in the movie. I think she has given some real stuff to do. There's a conversation in another movie this year that I loved, Dark Waters, the Todd Haynes movie with Mark Ruffalo, where Anne Hathaway basically gives a speech of, like, I'm not the wife on the side of things. Which is a cool speech, but also, like, she kind of is sometimes. I never feel like that's true of Katrina Belfi's character in this. Okay. So, I think I want to give it, like, a nine? I like it. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, is when you're depicting a real-life marriage in a movie, you're probably going to get a higher rating. Yeah. I think it's well done. I also do think you would enjoy it if you turned it on sometime. Yeah, I mean... If I find it on FX, I will check it out because that's where it's destined to end up. It is 100% where it belongs. And it was a Fox movie, so that's a real possibility. Ooh. Ooh, I just got two more. I'm doing an Iowa caucus simulation with my students tomorrow. And instead of Democratic candidates, we're doing it with movies where they have to convince people to, like, support movies. And they do the whole, like, moving around from thing to thing. 
Hmm. And I've got the spreadsheet of submissions open. And so I'm seeing things come in right now. And we just got nominations for Frozen and Monsters, Inc. That sounds like a great exercise because I have no idea how the caucus works. It's really weird. Republican caucuses are actually better because you just go... Every candidate or a representative gets to make a speech on, like, here's why you should support me. You go over to the candidate's spot that you want to support. They tally up the votes. Whoever has the most people there, they win that caucus and they win that, like, delegate or two. The Democratic ones have to keep going until no candidate has less than 15%. So if somebody has, like, 3% of the people, then those people need to either convince people to come to them or join another group. So there's multiple rounds of, like, giving speeches and moving around and stuff like that. It's why caucuses take so long. That sounds like hell on earth. It's awful. And it's also one of the primary ways these caucuses disenfranchise poor people because if you work an hourly job, you do not have time for this nonsense. That explains so much about the co- like the voting in general. And it is a thing where, like, Democratic caucuses are uniquely dumb because they do the multiple rounds of voting. Yeah. I mean, caucuses in general seem dumb. Just have a vote. Anyway, having moved on from Ford versus Ferrari, it is time for our next bonus award, which is the Lighthouse Award for movie in which the leads should have kissed. I think I may have picked a movie in the similar vein that you are going to give. Which is? I'm assuming I know what film you're awarding this to, so you may as well just talk about it first. So it was kind of a tie for me because originally I was going to call this the Ford versus Ferrari award because I would like to see Matt Damon and Christian Bale kiss. I think they have a good relationship, but that's also kind of why I don't like. It's nice to see a movie that is just about like good male friendship that doesn't get really toxic or ugly. So I'm going to leave that alone. Instead, I'm going to say The Lighthouse with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. From what I understand, that is the exact opposite of what you described. Right, just on this spit of land, this little island, hating each other and constantly ragging on each other, but then also sometimes, like, getting drunk and singing sea shanties. You know, I think there could be some kissing. I wouldn't be opposed. I feel like a lot of movies could have more kissing. Yeah. All right. Well, in a similar vein of two male leads who are friends in a movie, I chose 1917. Oh, good. I like that. I feel like if the two of them had done some kissing, I would have enjoyed it tremendously because there's a lot of emotional moments between these two men where even just like a friend kiss. Like when, spoilers, when the one guy dies. Yeah, like when the one guy dies and the other guy's cradling his body, if he had just given him a gentle, tender friend kiss, it would have been very poetic and nice. Yeah, that's a good choice. I like that. All right, so our next movie, alphabetically, is The Irishman, a movie that is also not a romance. Russ's wife, Carrie, her family goes all the way back, way, way back to the same town of Sicily as the Buffalinos. They talked about it all the time. She came from mob royalty, if you want to call it that. She andras. To them, it was like they came over on a, the Italian Mayflower. A movie that, based on the discourse, does not have many women in general. But that's the point of the romance. movie. I Yeah, I haven't seen it. I am reserving judgment. I assume that the discourse is exaggerating or making things more black and white than they are. I would agree. So, first of all, I have seen The Irishman twice. Dear God. I saw it in theaters, and then I watched it with my family over Christmas. Okay. I feel like that is seven hours of your life. Well spent. Okay. If you say so, on a second watch. I'm a big fan of The Irishman. That's so much time. It's such a good movie. But just to reiterate, we don't like crime here on this podcast. We are especially to murder. Yes, that's right. You want crime? You got to talk to Maura. She's got advice for criminals. Yeah, Maura's the crime boss here. So The Irishman is not a romance because it is a movie about male violence. 
really. And we see that in the depictions of Frank Sheeran, Robert De Niro's character, in World War II, having prisoners dig their own graves. We see it in the way that he curb stomps a man for having had the audacity to throw his daughter out of a store. And we see it in his work painting houses, which is code for murdering people for the Philadelphia mob. And it really is about the way that these men build communities for themselves while at the same time isolating themselves through this world of violence. It is his violence that gets Frank in with the mob, but that also separates him from his family. There was a lot of to-do about how Anna Paquin has relatively few lines in the movie. I think that's disingenuous. One, because she plays a character that is a child for the first half of the movie, and that child also has lines, and people were not counting that when they were complaining about Anna Paquin. Okay. It's also disingenuous because she doesn't have a lot of lines, but that's not her job in the movie. Her job is to be watching what is happening. She is the audience surrogate in the movie, observing her father and becoming more and more repulsed by him as the time goes on. And that is crucial to the movie. And I also think the length is crucial to the movie. The point is that Frank lives beyond the most exciting points in his life. He lives for decades after the time he spends with Jimmy Hoffa. And over time, everybody that he knows, everybody that he worked with in the mob is themselves killed until it's just him left thinking about all the things that he has done. He's unable to connect to his family because Anna Paquin will not forgive him for the violence that he committed. I think it's really masterfully done. As far as romance, there's not a lot to go on. Frank is married. He has a wife. He actually divorces one wife and marries another in the space of a moment of monologue, which I think is, again, a testament to the fact that Frank is not a person who sees these relationships with women as the important ones in his life. He's much more interested in what's going on with Joe Pesci and what's going on with Jimmy Hoffa. The interesting marriage that we see is Joe Pesci and his wife, who is wrapped up in the work that he's doing with the mob. Uh, his wife, Carrie, is played by Catherine Narducci, and she's right there when Pesci, for example, comes home with blood-splattered clothes. She's like, all right, give me your clothes. I'm going to wash them. We're going to take care of this. And that, I think, is an interesting relationship that's playing into all of it. Pesci's performance is awesome. It's the best one in the movie. Irishman doesn't give us a lot to go on. It's hard to judge, for example, Frank's divorces because it happens between two scenes. So I don't know entirely what to do with it rating-wise. Well, I just had an idea. Yeah? What if instead of picking a person to date, because there's so many movies, we play KFM? (laughs) I mean, we can do that if you want. But you can't choose, like, Charles Manson for the murder. No, of course not. It has to be, like, a main character. I think maybe we need to give each other a trio of people. Okay. I think this will be very fun. Okay, good. So I think for Irishman, I'm going to rate it, like, a 7 for lack of data. Okay. I think there's some interesting stuff in there, but I don't have enough to do better. A bold C-. minus. Exactly. Next up, we have one of the aforementioned Rabbit films, which is Jojo Rabbit, what its writer-director Taika Waititi calls an anti-hate satire, which isn't necessarily what I think the movie really is. I have some conditions for allowing you to stay here. Conditions? Yes. Tell me everything about the Jewish race. Okay. We're like you, but human. Please take this seriously. Think of this as an expose. I want to know all your secrets. Like, Taika is doing this Hitler performance that I think is fairly interesting. I think the performance only works because it's Taika having fun at the start of the movie, but by the end, the performance does become truly hateful in a way that matters. I think that performance is only redeemed because of how vile it gets in the last portion of the movie. I watched The Great Dictator, the Charlie Chaplin movie, the week that JoJo opened, and it is hard to watch JoJo after that because i think it is less bold like in 1940 it is something to 
have a goofy Hitler playing with a globe, tossing it in the air like it's a beach ball. But instead, Jojo Rabbit goes out of its way, frankly, much like Green Book last year, to take every character that you have any relationship with and go, actually, they're not a bigot, so it's okay. With the exception of the Tiger Hitler performance, like Sam Rockwell, who has a really disturbing trend of playing racists, and everybody else in the movie gets to be like, oh, fine, they're not really anti-Semitic, they're not really racist. And I'm like, no, this, this happened, a lot of people supported this, and you can't just absolve everybody that you know. I definitely see that as a thing with making movies. As I wonder if it's because you're writing these characters and you want to like them or something, but just... I feel like more movies should be made depicting the actual deep anti-Semitism of the broad German population that allowed for this to happen. Right, and it's the thing where, like, I'm not saying the movie had to be Schindler's List, but the movie also did not need to redeem Sam Rockwell. Yeah. That doesn't do anything for the movie. It just lets the movie like Sam Rockwell's performance more. Honestly, I think one of the best movies that does this is Cabaret. Like, I sure. don't know if yeah. another movie shows the actual terror of the fact that everyone actually does feel this way and the horror that is Nazi Germany at the time better than Cabaret. Right. It's the kind of, like I said, I compared it to Green Book, where Green Book is willing to make the big dramatic moment of throwing out the glasses at the start of the movie, but by the end it's like, oh no, we're fine, actually, nobody's really racist. Yeah. Which, honestly, one of the worst parts of that movie, and it is a bad movie. Yeah. Anyway, as far as romance in Jojo Rabbit, there's not a real romance, but we do have Jojo, played by Roman Griffin Davis. I think there are a lot of good kid performances in this movie, regardless of how I find it frustrating. And he discovers, about a third of the way into the movie, that his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, who I think is very good in the movie, like she is doing really great work, even though I would not have nominated her in two categories, that she is hiding a Jewish girl, played by Thomas and Mackenzie, in their attic. And Roman Griffin Davies is thrown off by this. He is upset. He is a member of the Hitler Youth and is very excited to be a part of the Hitler Youth. And early on, he is trying to upset Thomas and Mackenzie, so he tells her that her boyfriend has been killed, that he doesn't care about her, all sorts of lies designed to upset her. Meanwhile, Jojo, in like a very 10 or 11-year-old kid way, is kind of falling in love with her and also wants her to like him. They build up a nice friendship. And that's the thing where like calling the movie a satire makes it sound like it's more committed to great dictator-style jokes than it is. When most of the movie really is just about Jojo building this friendship with Thomas and Mackenzie. It's not really a romance, but the end of the movie, the army comes in and Thomas and Mackenzie gets to go outside. Hmm. Number? I don't know. Four. All right. So, the next award that we will be discussing, I want to say mine after Will, because this is the one I am most proud of. Okay, because I have a couple of answers that I'm not sure about. I could not think of an official title for Outstanding Romance Involving an Animal. I did consider maybe just making it the Peter Rabbit Award, because Peter Rabbit seems to get around a lot in that movie. True. That's like a Peter Rabbit who is having a lot of sex. So... I came up with a couple of answers. One, does Detective Pikachu get with anybody? No. Okay, because he is also a character that I feel like could be getting around. I mean, I feel like part of that is the Ryan Reynolds of it all. Sure. But unfortunately not, because I don't think there's any sexual energy in that movie, except for the lead and the Psyduck girl. Okay, are aliens animals for the purposes of this question? I mean depends on how we're using animals because technically you could include every romance we've discussed because people are animals like That's to true. get pedantic about it this is a bad movie but in men in black international 
we learned that Chris Hemsworth once had a relationship with a four-armed alien Rebecca Ferguson. And those are some hot people. Fair. And my third option was me and Babu Frick. (laughs) I love Babu Frick. Babu Frick! The oldest friend of (laughs) C-3PO. All right, fair. I didn't think about it ever. I love Babu Frick. Best part of that movie. Babu Frick loves us all. Low bar, though. All right, my answer. Now you say outstanding romance. I'm not taking this to mean the romance itself is good, so much as a outstanding depiction of a romance, if that makes sense. Because I don't want to sound like I am supporting the romance in this film. But the film I have chosen is Ari Aster's Midsommar. Are you counting the bear suit? The bear suit as an animal? (laughs) Yes. He is turned into a ritual bear and set on fire. And I think that's a great way to end all romances. So you're saying the romance is between Florence Pugh and Jack Rayner, but Rayner is a bear. I mean, he's not really a bear in either sense of the word. (laughs) But by the end of the movie, he is sewn into the corpse of a bear. And thus the romance itself involves an animal that was once alive and then is hollowed out. All right, I'll give you that. <laughs> I'm very happy with this answer because that was the first thing that popped into my head. <laughs> I'm thinking about making some like Academy-style graphics <laughs> for these to put on social media, and I look forward to putting that one together. And it'll be that me with my arm around movie. Babu Frick. Oh, uh, Babu Frick. Babu Frick! I will say, mine also involved animals. Yours were two aliens and a Pokemon. (laughs) So I don't see much room to judge here. I thought about doing separate awards for 2019 movies and movies we did on the podcast in 2019 so we could talk about seductive nickering again. Oh, yes. (laughs) Nickers seductively. But I decided we should try to keep this episode under two hours so we can save that runtime for our Back to the Future episode. Oh, God. All right. What's next, sir? It's Joker. (sighs) Your name's Arthur, right? You lived on the hall. I really need you to leave. My little girl's sleeping in the other room. Please. Spoiler, there is no romance in Joker. Joker pretends to have romance, but it's all a delusion because Joker is edgy. Um... Yeah, so in Joker, the closest thing to a romance is between Joaquin Phoenix, who is playing the Joker. He's doing a lot of acting in service of no ideas. In it, he has a crush on his neighbor, played by Zazie Beetz, and he is clearly stalking her. Like, he follows her to the bank and around her life, and it's really creepy and upsetting. And the movie does this fake out where it starts off by showing like, oh, she's into it. And they start going out. And like, she goes to see that one stand-up set that everybody in the world sees. She's there live and she laughs at it and no one else does because the stand-up set is bad. But boy, does she love Arthur Fleck who becomes the Joker. And like, we see them spending time together and we're supposed to believe that it's a romance which doesn't make any sense. And then the movie's like, you're correct. It didn't make any sense because he's going crazy. And they actually were never together. And we find this out when Fleck is going more and more into madness because he's off his meds because the city slash healthcare funding. And he's in her home and Zazie Beats walks in and she's like, what the heck are you doing in here? Like, I know you're my neighbor, but like, what the heck is wrong with you? And then it cuts away because he clearly murders her. But the movie isn't willing to show you that because then you might not think Arthur Fleck is a hero, which the movie kind of wants you to think because this movie isn't willing to commit to any ideas. They don't want to say he is made into a monster by the people around him because they're not willing to make him a monster. They also, for example, sometimes say, like, maybe 
the people need to rise up because the elites are terrible. And that's where this, like, Occupy stuff comes in. Arthur Fleck commits his first murders when he's on a subway train and some drunk Wall Street bros who are first harassing a woman because every woman in this movie has violence visited upon her. Ew. Are harassing a woman. And then they turn to Arthur Fleck wearing his Joker makeup and they start singing Send in the Clowns to him because these drunk Wall Street bros know three verses of Send in the Clowns. And then Arthur Fleck shoots one of them in self-defense. The other two run. He chases them down and commits execution-style murders on them, for which he becomes a folk hero. Like, two people witness this. Again, it's the 80s, so nobody takes pictures or video. But the next day, everyone knows about the clown man who murdered the Wall Street bros execution-style, and he becomes a hero to all these people. So the movie there is being like, maybe the poor people should rise up. But the movie's not also willing to say, yes, the common people know anything, because they're all portrayed as dumb sheep. So again, the movie won't commit to an idea. It's too scared to ha- commit to any one thing, which is what makes the movie such a pile of garbage. Ugh. I'm also just... I really hope Joker does not win, because I'm so tired of hearing about Joker. Yes. It's such a piece of crap. It also ends infuriatingly by guess what killing bruce wayne's parents but the joker wasn't involved in that it's joe cool which is honestly joe chill joe chill damn it joe cool is snoopy (laughs) snoopy killed bruce wayne's parents this is a great crossover first archie meets the punisher snoopy killed bruce wayne's parents (laughs) truly i know very little about comics Even I know that Joker is not involved in the death of Bruce Wayne's parents. It's actually worse in this. Because there's a big riot after Joker shoots Robert De Niro on live TV. And Joker gets into the riot. And that's when the Waynes are killed. I don't think Joker himself kills them. But they are killed during this riot. And the riot's eventually put down. Joker's arrested. He's brought to Arkham Asylum. And he's being interviewed by a psychologist. It's a woman. Don't worry. She gets murdered because it's Joker. And she's asking him, like, you know, you keep laughing. What are you laughing at? And he says, it's a joke. And she says, what's the joke? And he starts laughing. And then the movie cuts to Bruce Wayne kneeling over his dead parents, cuts back to the Joker still laughing and says, you wouldn't get it. The end of this movie implies that the joke of the film Joker is Bruce Wayne becoming an orphan. And this movie is not a Batman movie. And it keeps telling you, this is not a Batman movie. And then it ends by being like, actually, it's all about Batman. So, are you going to give this a rating at all? Yeah. uh, I'm going to say, for starters, the romance is not real. Because it's all in his head. It is also a repugnant movie that commits violence on literally every woman it encounters. And I'm going to say, it is a two. I will give a little bit of credit to his madness. All right. So, now... It's my time to shine. Mark saw a movie. Mark saw a movie. Knuckle crack. All right. So next movie, one of my favorite movies by one of my favorite directors. Sorry, one of my favorite actors. It's Little Women. I'm so sorry, but I just can't help it. I can't love anyone else, Joe. I only love you. Teddy, it would be a disaster if we it married, It would be a okay? disaster. We'd be miserable. Joe, Joe, I'd be a perfect saint. I can't. Saint. I can't. I've tried it and i failed. Why does everyone I expect can't. it then? Why does your family and my grandpa expect it? Why are you saying this? Say yes. Let's be happy together, Joe. I can't say yes truly, so I'm not going to say it at all. And you'll see that I'm right eventually, and you'll thank me for it. Mark's favorite actor is Chris Cooper. 
I don't know who that one is. He plays Mr. Lawrence. He's really good in the movie. He's great in the movie then. Yeah. When he was sad after Beth died, I cried. Yeah, he's so good in that movie. Like when he was just standing outside their house and like couldn't bring himself to go in. I was, I was a mess. I was a mess through a lot of this. Anyway, Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig, starring Sir Sharon and... <laughs> cut that. Starring Sir Sharon and... Nope, not cutting that. <laughs> um, Florence Pugh, who is maybe my MVP of the year. She's had an incredible year. And a lot, a lot of other people you know. It's an adaptation of Little Women. I don't really feel like getting into the plot. <laughs> if you want to know the plot of Little Women, I believe in your ability to find it out. It is 200 years old. So the romance that we're talking about then... We have the romances between Joe, played by Saoirse Ronan, and Laurie, played by Timothy Chalamet. We also have Amy and Laurie in there, and we have Joe and Professor Bear. And by the end, I think it's implied, like, their aunt and the grandpa? Aren't they sitting next to each other at the wedding? I I don't think so. Okay. I may have made that up. Aunt March dies in the movie. She does? Yeah, Joe inherits her house and turns it into the school that you see at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. But before that, I thought, like, at Amy and Lori's wedding. I don't think so. I don't know. It's hard to keep track of time in this movie. Not, like, too hard. It's no The Witcher on Netflix, but it does I have jump not watched around that. a lot. <laughs> it does jump around in time a lot. So, Lori is a rich little boy. Uh, he's Italian. lives across the street. <laughs> yeah, he's got that hot Latin blood. Yeah. How could I adore the boy next door? And he lives across the street from the March family who are... I think growing up, I grew up seeing one version of this on VHS, and I do think it merged with Meet Me in St. Louis in my head. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I can see that. We're like the family of girls next door to the, like, hot dude. I do think they kind of smooshed together. Yeah. Hot dudes abound in (laughs) the world of movies. Yeah, but Lori never tells Joe that her perfume smells like his grandmother's. That's true. But he also does a lot worse things. This is true. <laughs> so Joe and Lori were the closest of friends growing up. There's a wonderful moment in the movie when Lori first comes into their home, when he helps Meg, played by Emma Watson, get home from a dance after she twists her foot. And he walks in and he's just engulfed by the life of this household. And he's standing in the doorway, just kind of letting it wash over him. And it's such a wonderful moment. That's one of my favorite things about this movie is just you are Lori in that moment. You are watching just this activity, this outpouring of love between these women that is just happening all the time. And like Lori, you are immediately loved and immediately welcomed as well. But that's what makes the movie even more heartbreaking because they welcome you so fully into their home that whenever anything bad happens, you feel it as if it happened to someone you love. Yeah. But Joe and Lori have a flirty, flirty relationship, but friendship, but... Joe wants to be a writer and wants to be independent and doesn't want to get married. And she knows that if she and Lori get together, it would end terribly, which I agree with. She's right. But Lori's in love with her and he asks her to marry him and she says no. And then he gets they have de- a falling out. Yeah. He gets depressed and drunk in Europe where he sees Amy who's learning to paint. And their relationship goes from friendship with maybe a little bit of a flirty undertone to sheer wrath when Lori is very rude to Amy and then ends with a proposal. Yeah. And then they're engaged. Meanwhile, Joe goes to New York. She befriends Frederick Bear, played by Louis Garrel. And they're like starting to build a nice flirtationship, but she has to rush home when her sister Beth gets really sick. And while there, 
Joe is sort of settling back into her old life with her family writing up in the attic. And you get the sense that it's as she returns to that portion of her life, she's like, oh, this other portion of my life was me and Lori spending time together. She decides she wants to get back together with Lori. But whoops, when Lori arrives, he has already married Amy. Yeah. They're not even engaged. They have gotten married on the fly. But then Professor Bear shows up and is like, Joe, I'm going to go to California unless I have any reason to stay. Basically screaming at her. And Father March, played by a surprise Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk! (laughs) Who I was like, yelped when he walked in. I was just like, what are you doing here? Uh, Being great is what he's doing. He was so good at it. The movie then is unclear about what happens. Because there's a meta-narrative of Joe writing her novel. Which has always been kind of a meta-narrative. Because there are a number of ways in which Joe's life lines up with Louisa May Alcott's. Who wrote the novel. And Alcott never married. So what the movie does is it puts Joe more in Alcott's shoes where she's writing a book about, as she puts it in the movie, their little lives. And one of the fun things in the movie is we have Tracy Letts as Mr. Dashwood, her publisher, insisting that the character needs to be married. There's a wonderful exchange where Joe is like, but she said through the whole book she doesn't want to get married. And Tracy Letts says, readers want to see their girls married, not consistent. I love that line. It's great. I really liked this because after that that's when they show a big over-the-top romantic moment of running through the rain to it's the 19th century equivalent of like an airport scene exactly and Greta Gerwig is directing it in a way that it is just so clearly that over-the-top romantic gesture this sumptuous Alexander Desplat score to show that after it happens they basically cut to Joe selling the novel looking kind of smug like you know I got it published, but also just point like, oh, I did it. I succumbed to the pressure. And it's unclear, did this ending that is how the movie and book end actually happen? Or is it just what's made up? I think the, the answer book? is no. And I don't think that the final sequence at Joe's school invalidates that at all, even though Professor Bear is still there. I think there is a place for him in Joe's life without having to go down that rigid path. I think one of the thrilling things about this movie is it allows all of the characters, whether they be little women or otherwise, to choose the kind of life they want to live and to for the women to be the kind of woman they want to live. Meg gets to be the wife and mother and get fulfillment out of that, whereas Joe is no less a legitimate woman for wanting to do something very different. And Amy is no less legitimate for wanting to be a society bride. And Beth is dead. And Beth is dead, <laughs> which is also a thing that women do. <laughs> yeah, that is also... <laughs> A, a valid, key part of the female experience. A valid part of women's lives is dying. It's the only thing all women do. That's true. So, Mark, where do you want to rate the romance of Little Women? It's kind of hard to rate because it's like the key big romantic gesture is implied to have never happened. But I think you can look at the Lori stuff. Based off of the Lori stuff, I think is actually fairly believable. I wouldn't give it a 10. I wouldn't give it a 10, but I'd say like a 8 or a 9. I think I'm an 8 on it. Because I think the revisiting your youth and thinking about all the halcyon days after a really tough time is a way to kind of not fool yourself, but convince yourself, fall into a trap of trying to reignite a love that existed when you were happy last while you're super depressed. So I think her falling back in love with Lori makes sense. But I also think that the Lori Amy stuff kind of plays out well too so i think an eight is good i loved that movie it's such a good movie i've seen it twice and that's not enough times i know 
I'm probably going to get that. I'm just probably going to buy every Greta Gerwig movie on Blu-ray. Fair. So moving on, we have another one of our special awards. Many of the movies we cover on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals. So I need to ask you, Mark, what movie from 2019 most needs to be made into a musical? Hustlers. Ooh, good one. Just picture it. The songs of the women celebrating together like at Christmas. Is there an Usher song in it? I mean, I feel like it could almost be like Avenue Q where you update the reference to match the zeitgeist so they could insert any big male celebrity at the time. But you have to have the Ramona character enter singing Criminal by Fiona Apple and doing a pole dancing routine. So is it a jukebox musical? I don't think so, but I think they should continue to get the rights to that one song because that scene is a true iconic moment. Absolutely. I had a couple of options. One is Dora and the Lost City of Gold, which I think would work. (laughs) Like Into the Woods style quest musical. I I didn't see it, but (laughs) interesting. Let me tell you, that movie, pretty cute. Not a bad movie. I also thought that Little might work as a musical pretty easily. Isn't there a big musical out or coming? Probably. I do think it's weird that we made a movie that's the reverse of big and called it Little. I don't think it's weird. I think it's exactly to be expected based off of Hollywood's history. Yeah. Uh, My third option for made into a musical is American Factory. (laughs) Is that a documentary? It is a documentary. I've seen it twice. It's tremendous. It is about a factory in Dayton, Ohio. It was a GM plant that got shut down during the financial crisis in 2008. And then it got reopened by a Chinese company in 2016. And the documentary is all about first the cultural exchange and then the tension between American workers and Chinese management. And I think there's an interesting working class musical to be made there. That sounds actually really cool. It's a great movie. It's on Netflix. Highly recommend it. It's like 100 minutes. Sounds like a great project for you. I'll give it to my students. <laughs> and then put your name on it without crediting them. No, say extra credit. Write me an American Factory musical. I also told my students that I would give an A for the course to anybody who wrote a new state song for Maryland about the history of Maryland and got it adopted by the legislature. Uh, that is worth an A. Yeah, exactly. It shows a knowledge of social studies because you're incorporating history and knowledge of government. And also getting rid of references to killing the tyrant. Abraham Lincoln. Yes. For those of you who don't know, Maryland's state song is to the tune of O Christmas Tree, and it's about why Maryland should join the Confederacy. It includes a phrase, huzzah, she spurns the northern scum, and it was adopted in the 1930s. Oh my god. I just can't with that. Next up for our rundown of the <laughs> Romances of the Best Picture nominees is Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story. You're being so much like your father. Do not compare me to my father. I didn't compare you to him. I said you were acting like him. You're exactly like your mother. Everything you're complaining about her, you're doing. You're suffocating Henry. First of all, I, I love my mother. She was a wonderful mother. Just repeating what you told me. Secondly, how dare you compare my mother to my mother? I may be like my father, but I am not like my mother. You are. And you're like my father. You're also like my mother. You're all the bad things about all of these people. But mostly your mother. Which you saw part of. Yeah, I live in my party boy student lifestyle. I stayed out till after midnight, two nights in a row. And then I tried to watch this movie last night and I promptly fell asleep at 9.30. But it is a good movie. It is no comment on the quality of the movie itself. I was enjoying it. Laura Dern was in it. I was just so exhausted. And I was like laying in my bed, watching it on my computer. And then I kind of fell asleep. Then I woke up and realized this is not the right headspace. And I watched Gourmet Makes on YouTube instead. (laughs) All right. (laughs) 
which was the exact right headspace. It's very easy to summarize this movie very briefly as Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver get divorced. And, like, that is what the movie is. And you don't need a movie to be too much more. Like, you can tell a very simple story in a movie and it'd be good. But I'm sure there is more to the film. There absolutely is. I don't really feel like anything is served by me going into too much depth because the job isn't to summarize the plot here. And the only way to do this would be to summarize the plot. I think what this movie gets at is the difficulty of the end of a marriage between two people who do care about each other but clearly should not be together. Like their marriage is clearly not working. You've got this tension between Driver as a director of experimental theater and Johansson as an actor who's very much his star, but is also moving into television. She's going to be the lead in like some premium cable genre show. And I think the movie does a really good job of there are moments where each of them does things that aren't great. There are moments where you deeply sympathize with both of them. And they clearly care about one another. Even to the end of the movie, you can see that. But it is really about this like heartbreaking separation and all of the challenges that come with that with some great turns by Laura Dern, Alan Alda and Ray Liotta as lawyers in it. Liotta in particular is fantastic. I was really enjoying Laura Dern's performance, but I will say very Renata Klein, who is her character from Big Little Lies. Oh, sure. Well, they're both very uh, Southern California stories. Yeah. And I was very into it, but also I could easily see her character in this Nora I hadn't even seen much of this scene, but I was like five minutes in and I was like, I can easily imagine this woman yelling, I will not not be rich at a man. (laughs) So you did not see all of Marriage Story. I think this is pretty darn believable. It also, crucially, I almost did an award for best use of Sondheim in a 2019 movie so we could talk about Joker versus Marriage Story. Uh, Don't forget Knives Out. Oh, right. My top choice. What is he singing in that? I haven't seen the show, so I'm not sure, but I heard it's Merrily. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, in Marriage Story, there are two different Sondheim sequences. The one that gets a lot of attention is Adam Driver singing Being Alive. And he nails the way that anybody sings Being Alive, which is doing all of the dialogue half thrown away and half utterly committed to it. They're like, you're not a kid anymore, Bobby. I don't think you'll be a kid ever again. Add him up, Bobby. Add him up. And then the other one is Scarlett Johansson and her mom and sister singing You Could Drive a Person Crazy. A scene that is a ton of fun. That sounds very fun. It's excellent. Did you get to any parts where you saw her sister? I did not. Played by Merritt Weaver? She's incredible. You're going to love her. You Could Drive a Person Crazy is one of my favorite songs from Company. And the 2006 production where instead of doing scat, they play saxophones is incredible. So good. That Raul Esparza production is so, so good. I tried to find it on DVD, and it was like $35 for a used copy on Amazon, and it wasn't Prime, so I would have had to pay for shipping. That's garbage. You gotta check eBay. I know. There wasn't anything then, but I should keep going back just to check. All right. Um, I don't, I don't know where to put Marriage Story. I could give it a 10. I, I felt like I believed all of it. It was, it was hard. I mean, it's based off of his real marriage, isn't it? I think to an extent. I don't think it's like note for note based on Noah Baumbach's marriage, but... No. There are aspects of it that he's brought in but yeah i felt like this was very believable it's not a thing that i have personally experienced but i found a lot of truth to it all right moving on the next movie i will be covering is going to be the easiest and the most difficult movie to cover 1917 did you hear that story about wilco how he lost his ear not in the mood but he told you it was shrapnel what was it then well you know his girl's a hairdresser right 
and he was moaning about the lack of bathing facilities when he wrote to her. Remember those rancid jakes, Harris? Yeah. Anyway, she sends him over this hair oil. It smells sweet, like golden syrup. Wilco loves the smell, but he doesn't want to cast it around in his pack. So, he slathers it all over his barnet and goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up and a rat is sitting on his shoulder, licking the oil off his head. <laughs> Wilco panics and he jumps up. And when he does, the rat bites clean through his knee and runs off with it. No. There is one woman in this movie. She is in it for two minutes and there's no romance between her and the main character. This movie has been compared a lot to Dunkirk, and this is going to be a similar rating situation for us as Dunkirk. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of romance between the two male leads, and the death scene is very tender and sweet. Uh, Mark Strong shows up, and I have trouble seeing him as not a villain after watching Shazam. <laughs> but I... Good movie. Good movie. I enjoyed this movie. I don't think I was sold on the, the shtick. Like, I think you could have told this story better by letting it breathe and going into more depth onto different scenes, like having more time in each world instead of feeling like the whole first half of the movie feels like a quest in a video game where you're accompanying an NPC. Oh, 100%. Including there are sequences where like the George Mackay character is blinded and you've got another character being like, okay, jump here. It's literally yeah. like somebody giving you directions in a video game. Yeah. But I just, I can't rate this movie on romance because none exists in this film. I do agree with you that I think 1917 is an impressive technical achievement, but that technical achievement sometimes gets in the way of telling the best version of the story. Where we could invest more deeply in everything that's going on if we were able, as you said, to linger with things and also to see what's going on in other places. What is going on back with Colin Firth and his portion of the army? while they are waiting for the flare to go off, while they're waiting to see if the attack happens. What's going on with Richard Madden? Like, we could be going on with him. Most importantly, what's going on with Andrew Scott? Far and away the most interesting part of the movie. The best character. I absolutely love Andrew Scott. He is the hottest priest. And I just... He showed up. I was so happy. But I was also so sad because I knew from the moment he showed up that he would be leaving very soon. That's another problem with the setup is you know that no scene will last very long because of the time pressure of the story plus knowing the one shot. And it's the kind of thing where, frankly, at the end of the day, 1917 is not a movie about World War One. It's a movie about this like little mission and it's sad. Andrew Scott. A movie about him is a movie about World War One, and it's kind of a fascinating one because it digs into the nihilism that a lot of people start to feel during World War One of, like, nothing matters. This is the period that gives rise to, like, the Dada art movement because they have seen the pit and there is nothing. Right. And like, that's so fascinating. The way that he clearly doesn't want anybody to be hurt but doesn't feel like he has any agency, there's so much fascinating in that moment. And there's no point in 1917 where I'm more keyed in than that moment near the beginning. Yeah, I feel like a movie starring Andrew Scott as the super depressed and nihilistic, but clearly empathetic World War I soldier is the World War I movie that we need. That, like, investigates where we get all of the depressing World War I poetry, where Ernest Hemingway comes from. A movie that explains the actual 
art like you can get a sense for why art did what it did after the war. Yeah. And I think 1917 is a perfectly fine movie. Yes. But it's not a masterpiece because of the way it slaves itself to this particular technical thing. And of the movies that are nominated for Best Picture that sound like they have a chance of winning, I would honestly not mind if this won because it means Joker doesn't. Yeah, right now it feels like the real shots are 1917, Parasite, Joker, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Joker is the only one that's a travesty. Yes. That one does seem to be fading. It looks like Joaquin Phoenix is going to win Best Actor. He's won pretty much every precursor award. But... If I had to put money on it today, I'd say 1917 or Parasite. Yes. I would be happy if Parasite wins. Be so a movie exciting. I have not seen as of recording, but I am going to watch tomorrow. And I'm as a thrilled result, for you. When Will starts talking about it, I will take my headphones off and just leave him to it. And then he can signal me when it's time to come back. I'm seeing it for the second time tonight, and I'm so excited. All right. But round three on the Mark movies. Here we go. Two in a row. Yas Queen. Um, the next movie who is, is... Who is the queen in this movie? <laughs> Everyone. We all are. Um, and the next movie is Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. You know, this is probably the shittiest weather ever. The shittiest weather on the shittiest boat with the shittiest person. <laughs> Natalie, my sister, said he's a loser. He's a loser. They all said it. He's a fucking loser, and I didn't believe them. So I guess I'm the fucking idiot. Now you're not gonna talk to me? What, you don't feel like fighting? Well, I feel like fucking fighting because I've been up here by myself for four hours on this fucking shithole of a boat. Great movie. The hanging outiest of all movies. The romance in this movie, though, is mostly centered on Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton. Rick Dalton, who finds an Italian wife while they're shooting spaghetti westerns in Italy. I always forget Pacino's in that movie. Oh, yeah, he is. He's the guy who recruits him to go to Italy. Yeah, and, you know, you don't see any of the lead-up to their marriage, but it's not unbelievable. No. Um, We talked about this movie in our top tens of the year. There is some flirting between Brad Pitt and Margaret Qualley. Oh, yeah, one of the main... But that is just a person flirting with brad pitt because he is hot which i think a lot of people have done sure did you see the photo from the academy brunch a week or two ago of brad pitt there wearing a name tag yeah i was living i was just i really wanted to see if like who else was because if it was all of the a-list celebrities refusing to and just brad pitt i would fully believe it and be so happy there were a lot of people on twitter sharing stories of things like that like somebody who was checking people in at a fancy event one time, and Denzel Washington walks up and goes like, hi, my name is under Washington, it's Denzel. (laughs) And then handing over a driver's license to verify that it was him. I mean, it's like, you are still a person. Right, that's how you live life. But it's weird. I know, because these people spent the first, what, formative years of their lives, you know, not being known. Yeah, as a person. So, anyway, the romance of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I am going to rate a... Six. Because you don't see a lot of it. I'm going seven. Okay. I like this movie. I like this movie too. We have established our ratings do not correlate to likability. This is true. All right. We got one more bonus award before we get to our last movie. 
And Mark, I need to know, what is the least believable romance in 2019? This one was suggested by friend of the show and past guest Tim Lyons, who himself submitted the romance between Adam Sandler and Julia Fox in Uncut Gems. Julia Fox being a very attractive, like, 29-year-old, and Sandler in Uncut Gems being Sandler in Uncut Gems. But I kind of like that one. I think it's weird, but I dig it. So I'm curious, what is your least believable romance? I am probably going to go with the one established in context of film as less believable. Joe and the Professor, Professor Bear from Little Women. (laughs) Okay. Like, it feels so hollow, and that is the point. But I think it's a point well made. There are some theories that Alcott, who wrote Little Women in two parts. There's the part where they're young and the part where they're older. And she wrote the part where they're older second. And everyone was like, who's Joe going to marry? And Alcott was like, Joe's not supposed to marry anybody. So there are some people who think that she wrote the Professor Bear character, who is not a young hottie in the book, to be like the least satisfactory version of Joe getting married for readers who are really into the romance of it. I buy that, to be honest. Uh, My least believable romance is the one for which I want to name this award going forward, because we are now going to call this the Serenity Award for Least Believable Romance. That movie came out in 2019. That's right. We have Jason Clark and Anne Hathaway and Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway. Oh, and also... God. Um, who's the woman that Matthew McConaughey pimps himself out to? Oh, it's someone who I like. Yeah. Oh, right. It's Diane Lane. Yeah. And she's good at it, but... I mean, kinda. I love that because, again, the twist of Serenity, it's been a year, is that the whole movie is a video game programmed by Matthew McConaughey's son, which means that he built into the game the way you get more money is by you, playing his dad, having sex with this woman. What? Oh, my God. So bizarre. What a weird movie. It's a video game. There's a character called The Rules. You know what he is? The Rules. Yeah. Anyway. On that note. My headphones are going off. So Parasite is not a romance movie. It is not a horror movie either, which a lot of people think it is based on the title. So I want to be really clear about that. If you're scared of horror movies, you should see Parasite. If you take away one thing from this episode, it's that you should go see Parasite. It rules. It is now available on streaming and home video in the United States. So you can do that. We do get a little bit of romance. The start of the movie, our main character is visited by a friend of his who goes to college. Our main character does not. His family is very poor. And his friend says, hey, I'm going to study in the United States. Here's this high school girl that I tutor in English. I'm also in love with her. And when she becomes an adult, I'm going to date her. That, my friends, is kind of gross. But anyway, he tells our main character, she wants someone to keep tutoring her. And I want it to be you because A, the money will help you and your family. And B, I can trust you not to date this girl. So you'll basically save her for when I get back, which is also kind of weirdly gross and possessive, which gets at what this movie is all about. It's about social class. It's about the ways that we try to stake ownership and control over other people. So our main guy starts tutoring in his tutor role. He's known as Kevin. And he starts tutoring the teenage girl. And she starts flirting with him. She's like, you're a cute older boy. And I want to be with you. And so they start flirting. And then they start kissing and having a nice time. And they're always like texting each other like, I'm in love with you. And really, this dude is in the wrong. Because she's being very teenagery about it. It's bad. Then the movie Parasite happens, where things really go off the rails. And the romance isn't really revisited much after that. So ultimately, I am going to say this romance is ill-advised, but fairly believable. But you have to account for all the other stuff that happens in Parasite, which I don't want to talk about, because it's better if I don't. So I'm going to say that I rate this romance at an 8. 
And it's fantastic, and you should watch it. All right. Mark, come on back in. I'm back. I gave it an eight. I'm excited to find out why. It's not a romance, but there is some romance. We talked about why it's a little gross. (laughs) This will interest you. My friend texted me during this, just, remember Left Shark? And when my friend said, yes, why? He goes, no reason. Well, today's the Super Bowl, Mark. Oh, I I guess that makes sense then. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Who knew? Not I. Most Americans did. Well, it's surprisingly not that big of a deal in London. Oh, I will be watching Parasite instead of the Super Bowl, so I think I win. All right. So we watched some movies this year. You watched a lot of movies this year. I did. Stay tuned for the American Factory musical. It's going to be called American Factory! Generally, we end an episode asking if you had to pick one person from a movie, who would it be? But this episode, so many characters. I feel like we should do it a little differently. I've narrowed down the characters to three. Actually, there's six, because one of them is more serious, the other less so. To choose who would you kill, who would you f***, and who would you marry. Okay, I'm making a list real fast. Okay, I'll let you go, and then I'll ask you the first one. Okay, I have my list. Okay, so your first round, Will. Rick Dalton, Laurie, Lance Corporal William Schofield. Okay, is Schofield Richard Mackay, or is he the other one? He is the main, the one who stays alive. Okay. Um, I think you have to just get rid of Laurie. He's the worst. <laughs> he's very okay. cute, but he's the worst. Yes. Alternate, although he is hot. He's very hot. I think I'm with Rick Dalton. He's got an energy that I kind of like, especially at the end of the movie where his life is more fulfilling. So I think I could work with Rick. So I marry Rick. I think I'm going to bang Laurie and then kill Richard Mackey. Now, but to throw Cliff Booth into it, who is implied to be a murderer. Okay, but where... maybe not. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he is played by Brad Pitt. So what a difficult choice. Yeah. Would you sleep with Brad Pitt if you knew he was a murderer? Or actually, if there was a chance he was a murderer, but you weren't sure. Um, but is, isn't that true of all people? Yeah, everyone could be a murderer. To justify, <laughs> to find some justification. Yeah, but... so, uh, so yeah, I would. Okay, that's fair. I think I would too. Okay, I want to give you one. Okay. Um, so my first one for you is Cliff Booth. Okay. Ransom from Knives Out. Oh boy. And Jimmy Hoffa from The Irishman. So all murderers, except for one potential. I don't think Jimmy Hoffa personally killed anybody. I didn't see it. Who is he played by? Al Pacino. Al Pacino. Mm. I'm going to marry Cliff Booth, bang Ransom, because one is only suspected of murder. One is an actual murder, but is played by Chris Evans. So maybe for <laughs> He's one America's night. He's America's ass. One night only. Do you know about that? I... I'm vaguely aware. You know, there's a discussion in Avengers Endgame in which Captain America refers to himself as having America's ass. Not like metaphorically, like literally his ass is America's ass. That is absolutely insane. It's such a good movie. And then Jimmy Hoffa, he dead. Are you the Irishman? (laughs) Did you kill Jimmy Hoffa? I'm the Irishman. I killed Jimmy Hoffa. All right. One last one for you, William. Okay. Old Deuteronomy, Gus the Theater Cat, McCavity. Okay. Um, Mary Gus the Theater Cat. He's great. Um, I love how committed McKellen is in that movie, like banging his head against posts and, and drinking milk. Um, 
I think you got to have sex with McCavity. I've already seen him naked because he is wearing clothes and then no longer wearing clothes. So I can only assume he's naked. And then I kill Old Deuteronomy, who I hate. Old Deuteronomy exerts this weird, strange power of determining who gets lifted to the heavy side layer. She needs to be overthrown in some kind of cat proletarian revolution. I don't understand why she has absolute power to determine who is and is not a jellical cat. Like, Old Deuteronomy's got to go. All I want to know is who is Old Deuteronomy married to? Because she's wearing right, a wedding ring. So it'd be wrong of me to try to cut in on that. So I've got to kill her. Oh, of course. All right, I have one more matchup for you. Becky something from her smell. Ooh. Olaf the snowman. Oh, oh no. And red from us. <laughs> Damn it. This is hard. So the problem is our strongly stated anti-murder <laughs> ethos. Makes me want to have to kill Red from us. But then that would mean in some form I would have to have sex with Olaf the snowman. (laughs) So, I mean, marry Becky something. Interesting. Probably get divorced very soon after. Uh, Kill Olaf, have sex with Red. Interesting. (laughs) What would you do? Do you know Olaf dies in Frozen 2? What? But he comes back to life. He does. Because snow has memory. This is like a thing. Water has memory. They say it over and over again in the movie. It's like Olaf's weird conspiracy theory. Does that memory include being dinosaur pee? Because there's only a certain amount of water on Earth. That does not come up. Oh, boy. Anyway, that's it. <laughs> that That's our episode. That's our episode. Or at least the Best Picture nominees. Next week, like this year's Oscars, we'll be going to Netflix. There are a lot of nominations from Netflix. I know. They nominated both of the two popes. They nominated all the popes. They nominated... All the Irishmen. All the Irishmen, and also one marriage. And also a bunch of documentaries and stuff like that. But we will be going to Netflix to watch their delightful 2018 team romance to all the boys I've loved before. People have been asking for this one for a long time, so here you go. And it is our justification for putting it off this long because soon after, the sequel is premiering. Like two days later. Yeah. So we're right in time. So until then, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, or you can always email us at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your friends if they want Oscars content. Here we are. Last question, Will. You saw way too many to narrow it down, I'm sure. What's the best piece of dating advice you saw in 2019? In a movie, not just in general. Um, I'm gonna go from John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. And I don't think this is used as a dating move, but I think that if you want to date somebody, you should slip them a mysterious coin that will give them entry to the place where you live. Maybe that's a key. I think I I just said, give someone your key. (laughs) I think you just said, give someone your house key. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there we go. (laughs) Just stick your house key in a stranger's pocket and hope they know the address. That's a Parks and Recreation joke where Tom is always handing out keys. He's like, nobody's ever come to visit me, but I have been robbed three times. All right. Um, hmm. I guess my advice from Little Women is don't fall in love. It's overrated. Become a writer instead. Okay, there you go. Until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Somebody crowd me with love. Somebody force me to care. Somebody make me come through. I'll always be there, as frightened as you, to help us survive.